I'm often amazed the kind of information that you can find on the internet. Some information you have to be wary of because it is uh, bogus. It's just not true. And um, whether it be, it's urban myth that just keeps being repeated or whether someone is malicious depends on it. But nevertheless, sometimes you can find something and you know because it's from a reliable source it's true. And a while back I, I found the... The fact that between January of 1996 and July of 1997, singer-songwriter Elton John went on a shopping spree, spending an average of two million pounds a month. That converts to about 3.8 million American dollars per month. Among other things, he purchased four cars, over half a million dollars worth of flowers, and a wig for his 50th birthday party, which cost over $6,700. At the time, he was quoted as saying, I love my possessions. I get more love from them than most human beings. I think most of us would immediately see that as wrong. We would immediately identify that as, as, as not true of possessions, both not giving love nor uh, needing to receive love, particularly as much love as we would give a human being. But consider this fact as well. In the United States and Western Europe, we spend about $17 billion every year on pet food. $17 billion annually on pet food. And yet, and yet, it would only take $13 billion to provide everyone in the world with a basic diet every year. So we live in a world where money, more money is spent on cats and dogs and fish and birds and gerbils than human beings who are suffering and dying. It's staggering to think that if we would simply give up our pets, world hunger might cease. That's a staggering thought. And it says something about the human race, doesn't it, and how we view money and how we spend the money, how we use money. And it says that very often we fail miserably to give God glory with our money. But as God's people, we don't really have that option. We are called in every area of our life to give glory to God, including the area of our money. And the question is, how do we do that? How would God, God have us to think about the money that we have so that we may use it for His glory? And that's the question, questions that we would like to answer for ourselves this morning as we look to... Jesus teaching in Matthew chapter 6 and see that we should glorify God with our money. And let me just say up front that this morning's message is not primarily about you giving more to this church. Certainly I would welcome that. I would not stop you from doing that. But the message this morning is not about tithing. It's not about offering. Certainly that is part of the broader application. But what we're looking at is the big picture. Not just what do I do, but how do I think about money. How do I think about the, the money that's in my pocket now, that's in my bank account, that's in my savings, that's wrapped up in equity and homes and vehicles and everything else? How do I think about those things so that I might use those things to the glory of God? That's what we want to look at this morning. And so follow along as I read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. As Jesus begins speaking, he starts on the surface, the buying and selling of goods. And then he presses in, getting further to the heart of the matter. He begins by saying, we must choose between the right and the wrong treasure. Nevertheless, he says that that choice of our treasure comes by having the right vision. Do we have our eyes set on the things of this world or on the things of God's kingdom? In the end, he says, both of these things are related to our worship. Do we worship the Lord alone or are we idolaters? Do we try and worship God and money? And as we look at this passage and try to better understand what it means to glorify God with our money, I want us to begin at the end of Jesus' teaching and work backwards. I want us to begin at the very foundation he lays in verse 24, showing our worship of God or of money, and then begin to work backwards thinking through the application of having the right vision and then pursuing the right treasure. So the first thing that we need to see this morning is that we must serve one master. We must serve one master. Look again at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus' example here in having two masters should be thought of not so much as employers as much as slaveholders. And even then, our idea of slaveholders should not be informed by uh, our own nation's history, but rather the cultural context in which Jesus is writing from slaveholders of the first century Middle East countries. You see, it's easy to work for two employers, isn't it? You punch in, you punch out, you give them their work, you get paid, no problem. No problem. But to have two masters is very different. Slaveholders in Jesus' day were much more like employers, but with far more authority. Often the slave would be available day and night to be at the disposal of the slave master to do whatever, or sh whatever he or she would ask of the slave to do. There was a certain amount of devotion and allegiance that was involved to that master. And Jesus is saying, can you imagine trying to serve two masters? So one would ask you in the middle of the night, you know, my wife is sick, you need to go fetch the doctor. And, I, and as you say, okay, and you're, you're putting your sandals on and starting to walk out, the other calls out and says, hey, I want a midnight snack. Come and come give me some food. Well, you've got a big problem there, don't you? Perhaps even the other one would say, my wife is sick, I need a doctor. What do you do? Who do you go for first? You can't serve them, you can't split yourself in two and go get two different doctors. Ultimately, you're going to choose one or the other. Ultimately, you will come to love the one and despise the other. And what he's using here is really an idiom. It's a, it's a verbal expression of the culture. He's not saying you're actually going to despise and hate the master, but what he's saying is you can't serve both equally. At the end of the day, the decision time is going to come and you're going to make a choice. And one clear example he gives of this is, is in when it comes to God. God and money. And he says you can't serve both God and money. The original word that is behind the translation of money is the Greek word mammon. In fact, if you've got a King James Version, it probably still has the word mammon in it. Mammon is anything that we as humans put our confidence in for security and happiness. 
And over time, because as humanity put so, began to continually put so much confidence in riches, the word mammon eventually became synonymous with all material possessions, wealth, money, all those kinds of things. And Jesus is saying one cannot be devoted to both God and mammon, God and money. When the crisis time comes, your true loyalty will be revealed. Where you truly put your confidence, what you give your love to, what you give your worship to, will be revealed. And ultimately, whichever it is, that is the one that will be glorified with your life. But very often, it doesn't even really take a crisis to reveal where our loyalty lies. Think about it. When two job opportunities come up, what determines which one you will choose? When you're picking a college to go to, how do you decide between two great schools? When you're moving to a new house, how do you decide where to live? Now, unfortunately, even as God's people, hardly anyone sits down and considers how the decision will affect their ministry. No one says, which job will allow me to serve God better? Which college will allow me to serve God better? Which home will allow me to serve God better? No, usually it's, how am I going to get the most for my investment? How will I most profit financially by these options? How will my reputation benefit from where I'm going? When that's how we think and make decisions, we've served mammon, not God. We've given our worship to mammon, not God. We've glorified mammon and not God. It reminds me of the story of Martin Lloyd-Jones that he tells in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sideways plug, is available in the bookstore for a limited time. <laughs> but... Uh, no, he, he tells a story, Lloyd-Jones was from Wales, and he talked about this Welsh farmer who had this, had this cow, and it gave birth to not just one, but two calves. One, had, uh, one was red-colored, and the other was, was white-colored. And he said that, uh, told his wife it was an unexpected blessing from the Lord, and therefore one would be given over to the Lord. And then they would keep one for themselves. And the wife said, well, which one are you going to give to the Lord? He says, well, it doesn't really matter right now. We're going to raise them equally. And then when, when they're grown, then we'll decide which, which we'll dedicate to the Lord or give, you know, whether it means to slaughter or give away to somebody or whatever. And the other one we'll keep. And Lloyd-Jones says, one day the farmer came in and he had a very sad look on his face. And the wife said, what's the matter? And he says, uh, I think I'm afraid I've got some bad news. She says, what is it? He said, the Lord's calf died. I mean, that's the way we think sometimes, isn't it? That's the way we think sometimes. It's not, you know, very few of us would say, well, my calf died. We've only got one left. We need to, to give that over to the Lord. And usually, usually the, what factors in so much to that is an anxiety that comes over us. I'm not going to have provision for my life. We get, we get anxious and, and thinking, there's going to reach a time and I'm not going to have any money. I'm not, not going to have any resources. And I'm scared for the future. I'm scared. I want to be solvent. I want to be safe. I want to make sure I can put food on my table and have, have money to pay my bills. And so, and so I've got to hold on to what I have instead of letting it go. The truth of the matter is when we get anxious about money, it shows we ultimately don't trust God. The very next verse, listen to them back to back. No one can serve two masters, verse 24, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. See what Jesus has done here? He has put together our love of money and anxiety, and he has brought the two together. 
If we serve money, we will always be anxious about what we're going to wear and what we're going to eat and what, where we will live. But if we trust in the Lord, we won't worry about those things. Jesus is saying you can't serve God and mammon. Therefore, ditch mammon and serve God and don't be anxious about your life. Paul will go on and he'll make this argument in Romans chapter 8. And he'll say, speaking of God, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see the argument Paul is making there? He says, in, in the sending of, of Christ, God has given us the very best he possibly could have. He's given us his own son. And with him he has given us all things. Therefore, why would God hold anything back from us? Why would God say, no, no, you can't have that. I'm not going to give you that. I'm not going to provide for you like that. No, sirree. Paul says, are you insane? That doesn't make any sense. He's already given us the very best. Therefore, all, anything else we possibly need is at the ready for God to give to us. He's already given us his very best in Christ. And if we've trusted in Christ, if we've brought, been brought into relationship with God through the righteousness of Christ, then we don't need to worry. God will provide for our needs as the good and loving God that he is. Therefore, if we are truly seeking to serve God rather than mammon, if we have the desire to glorify God rather than money, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? One thing is, we were going to have the right kind of vision to guide our lives. That's the second thing that we see here. We must obtain the right focus. We must obtain the right focus. Jesus says in verse 22, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus is using a metaphor here that we need to stop and unpack before we can see how it's to be applied to our life. He begins with this idea with the eye being the lamp of the body. So let's just think about lamps for a minute. Where do you, where do you keep lamps? Think about first century. You keep lamps inside the house, right? I mean, uh, you can imagine an interior room. There's no windows. There's no, you know, there, there's a, it's nighttime. Unless you've got a lamp in there, you know, you're not going to be able to see your hand in front of your face. It is, it's pitch black, but you put the lamp in there, what happens? You don't just have, it's not like a flashlight. You don't just have like a, you know, a beam of light going out. No, it, it, it illumines the entire room. And so that's why the really good flashlights have that candle uh, function where you unscrew the thing and you just have the, the light and it illuminates the entire room. That's what Jesus is picturing here. If you don't have the lamp, though, you're just going to sit in darkness the whole time. But it's also possible... Not just to have a lamp that functions the way it's supposed to, but to have a lamp that's bad. To have a lamp that doesn't function the way it's supposed to. What if the oil is no good? What if the wick is not trimmed? What are you going to get? Well, if the wick's not trimmed, you're going to have a lamp that goes out all the time. If the oil is bad, what are you going to have? A smoky lamp. How would you like to be in a dark, smoky room with a little bit of light? I don't think so. A coffin hacking, can't find the door to get out. None of these things are any good. And so Jesus begins with this imagery in mind to then begin pressing it down and applying it to our life. He says, the eye, our eye, is the lamp of our bodies. Therefore, if we have a good eye, then our life is going to be full of light. But if we have a bad eye, we're going to be full of darkness. So what does it mean, metaphorically, to have a good eye, a good lamp, 
and a bad eye or a bad lamp. Well, the word good is used often to signify a singleness of purpose, an undivided loyalty. So I think Jesus is saying this. If you've got good vision, that is, if your gaze is fixed on God with single-minded devotion, then His light, the truth and the beauty of His revelation is going to fill up your life. But if you've got a bad eye, if you've got, if you've got a, a spiritual eye that is divided, it's not just focused on God alone, but it's focused on God and several other things that you're trying to give your worship to, then woe to you. Woe to you. Because you're going to have the ability to deceive yourself and have the change that God desires with His light to be hindered. Your life is at best going to be that smoking room with a lamp full of bad oil. At worst, you deceive yourself into believing you have the light and you don't even have the light. Your life is full of darkness. In other words, you deceive yourself into thinking that you're a child of God and you're not. You're not. And evidence of that is the fact that you're not just, you don't just give lip service to the worship of God, but you worship things like mammon. And so you, your gaze is split. In the language of James, you are a double-minded, a double-souled individual trying to give your affections to more than one God, and it doesn't work. At the end of the day, it reveals you're not even giving your affections to God in such a way as to be saved. If you've ever been biking with someone you've probably learned a very valuable lesson, and that is this. Never look at the person you're riding with. Never look at the person. I mean, you would think you're talking and stuff. The, the, the logical, polite thing to do seems to be to look at them when you're talking, right? I mean, that's what I try to keep, teach my kids to do. Look someone in the eye when they're talking to you. But if you do that in bicycling, you know what happens? You're, someone's talking, you go to look at them, bang, you're, you're toast. Unless that person is really good at dodging, uh, you go down. Because the natural tendency, for whatever reason, when you're moving in a direction, wherever your eyes go, that's where you tend to go. I heard uh, one of our former pastors talk about uh, 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 riding the tractor on the farm. And he said, as long as, you, as long as you looked forward, you were okay. You would fix some point on the horizon, a tree, a fence post, and you would just drive towards that. But if you ever turned around to look and see if you were actually given a straight line, the tractor would start going off. Okay? Same thing happens out here if you're mowing the driveway. You've got to keep focused on where you're going. And God says the same thing. If you try and split your focus, if you try and focus on God and mammon or other things, you're not going to be heading in the direction you need to be going. Your, your vision is going to be bad. This is why Bishop Ryle once said, singleness of purpose is the greatest secret of spiritual prosperity. If we want to glorify God, then we will not allow other things to take our eyes off of Him. Money will not become an object of desire that draws our gaze away from God. If it does, we will quickly find ourselves turning away from God and serving mammon. Now probably the easiest way to keep this from happening Probably the easiest way to make sure that your eyes are kept on God and not your money is to remember, it's not your money. It's not your money. After a large offering from the people of Israel to help build the temple, King David prays, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Who am I and what is my people that we should thus be able to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. 
In the New Testament, Paul sums up and says it like this to the Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? As the creator of all things, God owns all things. And just because he gives that to us does not mean he gives up ownership of that thing. Therefore, we must be good stewards of what he has given to us. The money that you have. You say, well, wait a minute. I work hard for my money. I went to school a long time and invested a lot to make the position I have to earn the kind of money I have. Great. Who allowed you to be born in a country where you could go to that kind of a school? Who gave you either the, the, the parents or the financial assistance that allowed you to go to that school? Who gave you the intelligence to make it into that school? Who gave you the physical standard to keep up with classes, to now keep up with this job? God, 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 and God. I mean, at the end of the day, what you have, whatever it is, it has come from the Lord's hand. And so every time you're at the store and you pull your wallet out and you open it up and you're either going to pull out the cash or you're going to pull out the plastic, remember something. It's not your money. It is not your money. It is a gift from God for you to steward well. He has entrusted you with this. So you just can't blow it on whatever you want. You just can't spend it any way you want. You've got to think, what would God have me do with this money? How would he have me to spend this? How can I demonstrate my supreme focus on him and not on the mammon? How can I glorify God and not the money? Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You have to choose. And by consciously, actively choosing one over the other, your life will begin to come into focus. There will be a singleness of, person, of purpose, a devotion to your master. And if you choose God, the result will be that you begin to pursue an eternal treasure rather than an earthly treasure. And this is the final thing that we want to see. If we are going to glorify God with our money, we must pursue eternal treasure. Pursue eternal treasure. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Jesus says, You can try and fool yourself. You can try and fool others. But the reality is it will be clear to everyone where your heart is by the kind of treasures you seek. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. That's why for those of us that claim the name of Christ, those that say we are Christians, then here especially we have to hear Jesus' command. If we are really his sheep, we will hear his voice and we will follow him. And he says two things. First, a negative command. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Why not? Because that is where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is giving a very practical bit of wisdom here. And he's simply saying, if you've invested heavily in things, you have the potential to lose heavily. If you, if you accumulate a lot of stuff, guess what? That means you've got a lot of stuff that's going to go bye-bye one day. I mean, I mean, even either someone comes in and steals it, or eventually it breaks down and you've got to buy more. Okay? One of the irritations, I love technology, one of the irritations of it is you've got to keep replacing things. So now I've got this, you know, not vast library, but I've got a box of VHS tapes, and I've got a VHS player that's a little wonky right now. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Because that means I, they don't sell VHS pl players anymore. That's, that's, you know, that's the 90s, you know? I mean, now all I got is a DVD player or a DVD-VHS combo. 
The, the more you invest, guess what? The more you're going to have to replace, the more you're going to lose, the more it's going to break down and decay and get old, and you've got to keep buying more stuff. Furthermore, Jesus says we need to understand this very world is temporary. Everything eventually breaks down. Everything eventually wears out. Everyone eventually dies. So why would you put your treasure here? It's here today and gone tomorrow. As John Piper likes to say, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. The end of your life is coming and that's it. That's it. You wind up like the Egyptian king Tutankhamun. You can go and you can see everything he was buried with. Amazing amounts of gold and jewels. And guess what? Still there. Property of the Cairo Museum or wherever it is. He's not got it. Why would you invest so much here when it's going away? And one day you're going to go away. That's the negative command. Jesus also gives us a positive command. that says, don't lay up treasures on earth. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, what does this mean? Well, some will tell you that despite everything to the contrary, you may not be able to actually you know, debit your account to heaven, but you can basically, through good deeds, bank spiritual blessing that will turn into physical prosperity in heaven. That somehow, by your good deeds, you actually accumulate, accumulate heavenly riches. And by, by I mean heavenly riches, I don't mean like spiritual blessing. I mean literally like coinage, heavenly, you know, minted, you know, uh, you know, in godly trust up there somewhere. Okay. Well, you missed the point. You, you, you totally missed the point if if you buy into that belief. First of all, Jesus is not against wealth. He is not against possessions and money. Jesus does warn there is, and as a matter of fact, the whole Bible does this, but there is an inherent danger in them. How, how often does Jesus say it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Why is that? Is God prejudiced against rich people? No, but because riches can very quickly become his treasure. Remember the, the rich young ruler, this guy, he goes to him and he says, Jesus, tell me what I have to do to have eternal life. I mean, that's the kind of question that hopefully you as a Christian want to hear, definitely preachers want to hear. I've got the answer to that one. Let me tell you. But Jesus knows this young man's heart. And so he begins to press him a little bit. And he says, well, we'll keep the law. You're good. You keep the law. Says, I've done that. I've kept all the law. And he says, really? Fine. He says, then sell everything that you have and come follow me. And the gospel writer, the Lucan account, he says in chapter 18, verse 23, when the young man heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Why did Jesus say keep the law? That's not how you get saved. It's by grace. He said keep the law because he wanted to point out the first and most fundamental commandment this young man had not kept. Have no other gods before me. And what did this young man have as a god? Mammon. Wealth. Riches. Externally, he thought he was doing everything right. He thought he was a good and godly man. He kept the law. He offered sacrifices when he sinned. But Jesus said, you lack this one thing. You don't love God. You don't love God. And Jesus was trying to point this out to the young man and say, give up the wealth. Give up the false God. Give your life over to God. Trust in him alone and you will be saved. And the young man couldn't do it. Jesus is not against wealth, but he is saying, you must spend your money in such a way that it's clear you don't feel at home in this world. 
That's what he means when he says, do not lay up treasures on earth. You must make sure in the midst of whatever God has blessed you with, this world, this life does not become your treasure. Why? Because Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Therefore, to glorify God with your money means that you will spend that money in such a way that it has shown God himself is your treasure. That you value him above all else. And if you value him above all else, then you will use the money in a way that he desires. And in that way, you lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. You are investing in eternity. Both your joy and the joy of others. An example of this is the mathematician and scientist Blaise Pascal. Pascal was an influential French scientist who lived in the 1600s. He was a, he was a genius showing an intense understanding of geometry at the age of 12, though he'd never been trained in it. He wrote important works on mathematics and experimental physics that people still study and benefit from today. But more importantly than any of that, Pascal was a devoted Christian. He wrote books also on grace, on the Christian life, and his love of God drove him to love the poor. Increasingly, Pascal deprived himself so that he could give away more and more to the poor. He sold... You have to understand this. Like, this is... Patents were in effect at this, at this time in France. So literally, he would come up with some creation, some invention. He would do something, and he would get money from this. He was a very wealthy man. But he began to sell his coaches. He began to sell his horses. He began to sell off his fine furniture, his silverware, even his library. That, that's a tough one. I'll be honest. But he sells off his library. Why? In order to give to the poor. He once said this. Listen to this closely. I love poverty because Christ loved it. I like wealth because it gives a means to assist the needy. Pascal demonstrated what it meant to store treasure in heaven, to use his money to the glory of God. You say, what does he mean by Christ loved poverty? Well, what does Paul say in Corinthians? Christ who was rich became poor that you might be rich. Christ was not rich in the sense that he had material things, but he resided in the eternal beauty of the glory of God that rightfully belonged to him. And what did he do? He gave that up. He veiled it. He became poor so that we might know the riches of salvation. He lived as a poor person. He showed grace to poor people. And Blaise Pascal picks up all of this and incorporates it into his life. And he says, if Christ loved poverty... And I need to love poverty. And if Christ has blessed me with wealth, then I just see that as a means of helping those that are poor. Putting your treasure in heaven means ultimately spending money, not hoarding it. The Bible is replete with instructions for giving away the money God is giving to you. Giving to the poor, giving to the church, to church people, giving to support the work of God. In the Old Testament, the pattern was established for the people to give of their first fruits. We commonly call this a tie that was a, a tenth of what they have. And the, the big question that we always ask ourselves is, do Christians need to give the tithe? Do Christians need to give a tithe? Do I need to give 10%? Is it off the, the, the gross or the net? You know, if I get a birthday gift, it's 100 bucks. do I give $10 to the church? You know, Frankly, that's wrong thinking. Because what are we trying to say? Just give me some simple little basic command. I'll do my duty and I'm done. And guess what? The New Testament never gives, never gives a number. All it does is give example after example of example of people who joyfully 
cheerfully, willingly, gave generously and sacrificially above and beyond their means. You've got the Pharisees that go in and everything they've got, a tithe given down to their spices. They buy a spice and donate a tenth of it to the temple. And what does Jesus say? Woe to you, Pharisees. And who does he hold up? This poor woman who only has a penny to her name but drops it in the box. He says, that's what it's all about. Here is one who should be going to the temple to receive alms for the poor. And instead, she gives alms to the poor. He talks to the Corinthians and says, follow the example of the Philippians. Not a wealthy church. In fact, struggling. And yet, what do they do? They give above and beyond their means generously because they know the Jerusalem Christians are starving. A church down in Mexico, Southern Baptist Church, Northern Mexico, right across the border. 50 people, 50 members. Five families, I think. $10,000 to Lottie Moon three years ago. $10,000. They said, We're not buying Christmas gifts, we're not going to the movies. We're not doing anything else. These are blue-collar people. We are giving sacrificially, joyfully to the work of the Lord. That's what the New Testament holds up. And so, yes, is 10% a good goal? Absolutely. But think of it as kind of the rung that you reach up and grab onto so that you can pull yourself up to the next rung and then up to the next rung and then up to the next rung. In the scriptures, the, the money that we have is, is, is never meant to be divided up and sectioned out in neat little increments so that way everything is nice and dandy, we feel comfortable and safe. No, it's all about saying, what more can I do for people because of what God has given to me? Therefore, to whom much is given, much is required. That's the biblical model of banking in heaven, putting our treasure there and not here. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Did you get that? The Bible basically says there's three, there's three levels of how to live your life. You can steal to get, you can work to get, and you can work to get in order to give. And far too many of us as Christians live on level two. We just work in order to get. But the Bible pushes us relentlessly to level three. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Why does God bless us with abundance? So that we can have enough to live on and then use the rest for all manner of good works that alleviate physical and spiritual misery. Enough for us and abundance for others. And that's how, excuse me, that's how we should view money. Not as something to be hoarded for a rainy day or a superior lifestyle, but as one more gift that God has given us to use for His glory. If we get a $100,000 salary, doesn't mean we have to live like we have a $100,000 salary. At least as Christians it doesn't. Malcolm Muggeridge once said, the only ultimate disaster that can befall us as God's people is to feel at home on this earth. Friends and loved ones, it's not wrong to be wealthy. But you shouldn't be overly concerned with amassing wealth. And if you do find yourself blessed, you must realize how God intends you to use it. We cannot allow ourselves to get consumed with money because we'll begin to then see this world as our home. But we have to remember it's not. 
We are pilgrims on our way to the city of God. We are looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. As Hebrews says, Moses gave up the treasures of Egypt for the joy that was set before him. And one day someone say of us, they gave up the, the treasures of their life for the joy that was set before them in heaven. That's where our heart should be. That's where we should long for. And if we do, we will find that our treasure will not be here. It will be here. It will be there. And if our treasure isn't here, wrapped up in this life with its things, then we will have no fear being content with very little and generous with very much. For our trust will be in God and we will glorify Him with our money. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the country we live in. Father, even in a state that has high unemployment, for families that are supported by blue-collar salaries, Father, compared to much of the rest of the world, we live as kings. So, Father, help us never to invest our lives in this world. Father, help us never to put our treasure here. But, Father, help us to put it in the eternal things that await us in heaven. Father, help us to invest our life in those things and our pocketbook along with it. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, but more than that, you would give us grace to be content and generous with what you have given to us. Father, may we do this to glorify you, to show that you are worth far more than any riches. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.